Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Dow stabilized today after yesterday's 3% loss. The markets were reflecting anxiety about a U.S.-China trade war without end. Last week, President Trump decided to put a 10% tariff on another $300 billion worth of imports from China. China responded by halting purchases of U.S. farm products and letting its currency fall. The markets were calmed today by China's assurance that it would, it would only allow its currency to fall so far. With me now to talk about the U.S.-China trade situation is Phil Levy, senior economist at Flexport. He authored the book Rebuilding a Bipartisan Consensus on, Foreign po- on Trade Policy while a senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Good to be back with you. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, about Trump's decision to put the 10 percent tariff on the $300 billion worth of imports from China. It seems like all his trade advisors, uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article of that describing all of them advising against it except for Peter Navarro who's out there on the extreme. Um, and he went against all his advisors and went for this uh, latest – tariff on, you know, consumer goods that are going to affect people in the United States. Uh, what, what, do you, what, what do you think he's upset about there? I think he was clearly upset that his prior approaches hadn't worked, that he had just sent his top negotiators, his Treasury Secretary and his U.S. Trade Rep, off to Shanghai to have talks with the Chinese to see if they could make progress, um, get additional Chinese purchases of agricultural goods, for example, and it didn't work. They came back empty-handed, and he was reportedly furious about that. Now, are there specific things that we know that um, are the problem here? Because it's it's amazing that we can get in through all this, and we don't really know specifically, uh, you know, what what things they're hung up on here. Well, I think that we know several things that are sort of blocking a, a deal with the Chinese. Um, I would say the first big thing is that we haven't had focus. In our requests, that Peter Navarro, whom you mentioned earlier, who is sort of the ultimate hardliner on China, just you know summarized these in what he referred to as China's seven deadly sins. But the fact that you have a wish list that's seven items long, each of which are sort of major categories, says this is a really difficult thing to address. Second big problem is when we send people like Secretary Mnuchin to talk to the Chinese. It's not clear that he speaks on behalf of the president. Formally, he does as Treasury Secretary. But if we go back about just over a year, he cut a deal with the vice premier of of China, Liu He, which one week later, the White House rejected. It was Peter Navarro who announced it. So the Chinese aren't sure they're talking to the right person. And I think they have no confidence that if they cut a deal, they get any kind of lasting trade peace. So at this point... I think we, we understand pretty well why it is the Chinese aren't moving. The um, interesting one of the interesting things I read was um, uh, Paul Krugman this morning in the New York Times, and he said that it's pretty clear that Donald Trump refuses to give up on his belief that trade wars are good and easy to win. His plan is to continue the beatings until morale appro- improves. Um, <laughs> if you Continue the beatings until morale improves. I mean, th- this is just kind of a never-ending cycle, it seems, that we're, we, we aren't going to get out of. Yeah, I think that's a serious concern. I think President Trump has not shown a great deal of variety in his approach to these things. There is a one-size-fits-all answer that you just keep raising tariffs until the other side gives in. 
And it's a problem when the other side doesn't give in. I think the thing, one of the things that really distinguishes President Trump is whereas his predecessors may have sort of recognized that doing this can lead you into a lasting and damaging trade war, President Trump actually likes the trade war. He thinks it moves us towards a trade balance. He thinks he gets tariff revenue out of this. He believes, contrary to evidence, that um, it's foreign countries who are paying the tariff revenue. So he doesn't seem especially concerned about the breakdown that ensues. Yeah, I'm surprised at some of his comments. I noticed that Apple uh, sent a nice letter to the uh, U.S. trade representative asking not to have this round of uh, tariffs put on because it's going to affect Apple products. It's going to make them all more expensive. And Apple doesn't want that. And uh, Donald Trump's response was, well, you should come back and bring some of your factories to the United States. That He, he just doesn't, you know, thinks that uh, he can remake the global economy here. Yeah. So I think one of the things you bring up a really central point, which is, do you or do you not believe we live in a world of global supply chains? Um, and the president and, and Peter Navarro they may recognize that they exist, but they think they're a bad thing and they'd rather do away with them and have things entirely built in the United States. The problem with that is that's not the way the global economy has moved. We have American companies that are wildly successful. Apple is an example, but they're successful because what would otherwise be weak links in their production chain, they're able to take care of those with imports. In the same way, you have U.S. companies providing services to foreign um, foreign producers where they have their weak links and Americans are able to step in and fill them. That's really what's happened with trade. And this is not a trade policy that's designed to accommodate that. Um, well, what do you see um, happening here? As President Trump goes into these meetings and um, – he just seems to decide uh, that he, he will go against all uh, arguments. Now, here we had um, the U.S. calling China a trade manipulator when it seems like you know all evidence is that China is not manipulating its currency right now, that it's letting it fall to a more normal level and, if anything, has been holding it up recently. But, but Donald Trump is just so uh, miffed that he is going to call them a currency manipulator even though it seems like a bright red lie. Yeah, the, um, there was a very good column this morning by Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary and distinguished economist, um, who talked about just how damaging this currency manipulation label is, but damaging to the United States, not damaging to China. As you said, there is a definition of what currency manipulation might be. It's not just an epithet that politicians like to hurl. It's supposed to be when, say, a country is running a large trade surplus and when it is intervening in its currency to try and make its exports look cheaper. Well, with China, you know, one can talk about what happened over a decade ago, but in recent years, China, the IMF basically said, you know, they're at 0.4% of GDP in their current account surplus. They're more or less in balance. So it's not a large trade surplus with the world. And if anything, they have been intervening to try and push in the other direction to keep their currency from falling. The action they just took was they stopped pushing back against this tide. So it doesn't meet any sort of objective standard of currency manipulation. And now we're getting into the danger that when the U.S. Treasury makes statements which are you know, easy to discredit, then it won't have credibility when it needs it. 
And I mean, this goes back to President Trump uh, talking about how uh, tariffs are going to pay for themselves and things. He keeps saying things that are not true and um, just keeping – but he just keeps repeating them. Yes. And on that particular point, we've got a couple of good academic studies done independently, at least on the China tariffs, which showed that um, while in theory – you could have China pay somewhere between, you know, zero and 100% of the tariffs. In practice, what these studies found was China's share was of what they were paying was close to zero, and that almost all of this was being paid on, passed on to Americans, whether that's, you know, American companies that then might have to eat the costs or whether it's directly to consumers, that's another story, but it was Americans who were paying these tariffs. I'm talking with Phil Levy. He's senior economist at Flexport, and he's author of Rebuilding a Bipartisan Consensus on Trade Policy. And we're talking about what's been happening with U.S.-China trade and the Trump administration. Uh, I think that a lot of people are looking at uh, the markets moving so uh, violently yesterday. But uh, the U.S., economy still seems really strong. The job numbers were out recently. They're, they're pretty terrific. The growth is solid. Um, this really isn't shaking the foundations of the U.S. economy. It seems to be messing with China's economy quite a bit. And uh, China seems to be willing to absorb quite a bit of economic pain because of this. But the U.S. seems to be floating along pretty well. Is this um, – do you sense that um, the U.S. can withstand this kind of thing for a while? I think it poses a real risk. And I think we need to be careful about sounding the all clear and saying it's fine to do tariffs. Um, one of the things to remember is – We've only been applying tariffs in quantity fairly recently. So if you look, even just the, take the China conflict, the president started out reasonably small. It was $50 billion worth of trade. He added another $200 billion, but it was at a relatively low level, 10% tariffs. That only really went big for the 250 you know, when you put it together in May. Um, when he d took a first swipe at the Chinese. And so now we're seeing an announcement of another $300 billion. So we're really just getting started on this stuff. And we are seeing it in the numbers. You've had um, soft business investment at a time when you just had tax reform and you're getting a very large federal government budget deficit. So when we would be expecting to see great things, we're seeing timidity. And we don't have to wonder about why. We just had the Fed chair tell us last week that there's this uncertainty about trade policy that's weighing on businesses. And I was looking at a graph of manufacturing exports. Uh, it looks bad. Yeah, well, that's part of the point about these supply chains is that the, the way this tends to work with manufacturing, it's not – you know, like the good old days of David Ricardo where you make, you know, cloth in one country and wine in another and you ship it back and forth. It's businesses often sending things to a subsidiary where they've invested abroad or bringing things back from a subsidiary. And that takes time and that takes confidence and that takes investment. And this administration has been systematically undercutting those. And so we, you're right. We're starting to see the effects in the numbers. Well, I mean – 
I think the you know some people are you know whipping out Herbert Hoover and um, the kind of um, policies that uh, exacerbated the Great Depression. Uh, is this a like a global cycle of economic downturn that could be ignited here if you uh, if you're hurting the Chinese economy and China's been. Uh, a big part of the growth equation for a great big chunk of the planet, uh, does it eventually, the rubber meets the road? Yeah, I think it's a real concern. I think you already have slow growth in a lot of the rest of the world. Um, This is not exclusively about U.S. tariffs and U.S. policy. They have their own problems. They have their own things going on. China had debt concerns um, before President Trump started going at them with tariffs. So Europe had sort of slow growth. The Japanese have had persistent slow growth. So there, this is more like, you know, playing with matches near a fuel depot. Um, you might get away with it, but it can end really badly. Um, and once the conflagration takes hold, then it's kind of hard to, to sort of extinguish it in short order. Um, I think, you know, this is the tariffs themselves. You can't say that's you know, of a sufficient magnitude to sort of bring on a recession or a depression, it's certainly not doing any good, and it risks both tipping sort of the psychology and the actual practice in a bad direction. I wonder if we could talk for a second about, you know, Trump's track record on trade. He's been in office for a while now. He's started a lot of different trade um, renegotiations. And how do you look at his track record here? Uh, right now, he's going into an election season, and his track record is looking pretty dodgy. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure for him to deliver a win somewhere. Um, I think that was partly why we might have seen the frustration when his negotiators came back empty-handed from Shanghai. If you look, there is a grand total of one trade deal that was – seen all the way through from negotiation through implementation, and that was the deal with Korea. It was a very, very minor deal that did almost nothing. Um, They've got the USMCA negotiated. The estimates I've seen say that that probably on balance is a net negative for the U.S. economy. Um, There's one that said positive, but that was assuming that President Trump didn't cause any trade uncertainty, um, which is a bit risible. So, and that hasn't passed the Congress. So this is the difficulty is there was this you know promise of being able to strike great deals and do better things for American producers and American workers and American farmers. What we've seen so far has been a fair bit of pain um, for those groups. And so, yes, one would expect that there will be accountability. So there's been, you know, I mean, the, the, the flappy started with the EU. That didn't really amount to much. China hasn't amounted to much. We've got... The, 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 the NAFTA thing uh, being something you can't pass through Congress. Um, it's it's really uh, kind of a nothing burger, I guess. But it's a lot of action, and it seems to be all about the action and and the being out there fighting rather than actually getting something accomplished. Yeah, and I think what this does is it is difficult to sort of hold steady at the current position. So you either you mentioned a whole range of these discussions. They're having talks with Japan right now. Um, if they can land some of them, if they can get the USMCA through Congress, then they can say, look, we've really accomplished something. Um, people may or may not care much about how much it substantively accomplishes. It will appear to be an accomplishment. If, on the other hand, you don't, 
it's going to be a, this is a hard position to hold in and there's going to be a temptation to do more, to, to double down. That's been the president's inclination. And there are pending fights. One shouldn't think it can't get worse. It can. Um, you've got uh, a finding that um, autos from Japan, Europe, and elsewhere sort of can pose a national security threat to the United States. You've got a brewing fight about uh, between Airbus and Boeing where the U.S. has the right to impose some retaliation. And so these things are off there on the horizon. Phil Levy is a senior economist at Flexport. He's author of the book, Rebuilding a Bipartisan Consensus on Trade Policy. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's been happening between the U.S. and China. Great to be with you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the military posturing between the U.S. and North Korea. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. North Korea and the U.S. are slowly and carefully ramping up their provocative actions. The North has made four missile launches in the last two weeks, and the U.S. and South Korea have begun their annual military drills yesterday, and their main drills are going to start on August 11th. The U.S. has also revoked visa-free entry rights for foreigners who have visited North Korea. Uh, U.S. officials, however, are upbeat, and the U.S. Secretary of State says he expects to get back to sustained negotiation processes with North Korea soon. With me is Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, and it's good to talk with you again, Bruce. Good to be here. Um, what, what do you make of what's going on? President Trump is kind of shrugging off the U.S., firing off some missiles. Uh, they're the short-range missiles. They're not the intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um should the U.S. be more concerned, less concerned? Well, it's a little bit like what your previous guest was talking about. When Steve Mnuchin goes to Beijing, is he really speaking for the administration? Uh, and it's the same with North Korea. Um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has done his level best to try and uh, stay tuned with President Trump. Uh, but the fact is our diplomats don't really know what's going on. Most of them think Trump's policies are achieving nothing except allowing North Korea to make more weapons and ICBMs. Uh, and th this is really an unprecedented situation. You see it also with South Korea and Japan that are in the worst uh, fight between them since uh, uh, really in the post-war period. Uh, ordinarily, you would have a phalanx of State Department people out there coordinating everything between Japan, Korea, and uh, the U.S., so you get a good alliance against China, which is what their policy has been at least as far back as Clinton. Uh, in this administration, there's no coordination, and so everybody is flying off in the direction that they, uh, I don't want to say that they want to, but they're taking the opportunity to deal with other kinds of grievances that have really split uh, the so-called uh, tripartite alliance between South Korea and Japan, so it's it, this is a, a government where even the top diplomats don't know exactly uh, what the score is and where to go from here. You know, it seems like the 
country that's getting the short end of the stick here is South Korea. They, they, they um, were maneuvering pretty well with the, the North Korea negotiations. They have a vision for uh, you know, having a better economic relationship with North Korea and, and creating some kind of unit there. Uh, but they're getting skunked from Japan. They're getting skunked from the U.S. side, essentially, with something like this uh, visa situation. They're 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 getting uh, their sunshineish policy shot in the foot. Well, tens of thousands of South Koreans have been to North Korea in the last uh, twenty years, and uh, apparently, they're going to have to find a, a, another way to get into the United States, uh, uh, applying for a special visa or something like that. Uh, for two years, I, yeah, it'll be two years on September 1st, the administration has had a ban on any Americans going to North Korea except a trickle of humanitarian uh, groups, uh, which is completely self-defeating. I mean, here's Trump crossing the DMZ on June 30th to shake hands with uh, Kim Jong-un and say what a great guy he is. And meanwhile, experts uh, like myself and others can't go to North Korea, which is really uh, uh, very difficult for what what now is a very large, fairly large expertise on North Korea among American expert experts. So everywhere you look with this administration and its foreign policy, you, you just see uh, an initiative there, and then maybe it's pulled back the next day, and an initiative over there, uh, and the diplomats don't really know why that initiative was taken. Uh, I don't know what they think they're accomplishing with this stupid visa policy. It's a, a minor thing. Uh, the major thing is that North Korea is trying to get our attention with, uh, in their typical fashion, a calibrated response uh, of firing off missiles that uh, draw the world's attention but don't violate the alleged uh, agreement that Trump made with uh, Kim Jong-un in, in, in Singapore back in uh, June of 2018. So, uh, I, I really, in my entire career, have never seen such disarray in American foreign policy, in this case toward East Asia, but it, it's true of the EU. It's true uh, more or less across the board. What do you make of what's happening with the U.S. and South Korea and the war games that are ongoing here? They're a, a perennial thing. Did they have to happen this time? Did it, what, what, is there uh, something provocative about them this time? Did uh, Trump want to cut these back and now he's doing them? Who, who's driving I, the ship? I, I don't know what – I mean they're going on. They're starting this Tongmeng, uh, which means alliance, uh, maneuvers in, in August. They're smaller than some of the huge war games we used to do. Uh, but the North Koreans say that at – Singapore, Trump agreed to a moratorium on these these kinds of uh, military operations, and Trump himself called them provocative and called them war games, which is usually North Korean rhetoric about these things. Uh, and, and so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that the North Koreans feel abused by this and that they've been double-crossed, uh, but they, they have, you know, for the North Koreans especially, they've been measured in their response. But the war games are just starting, and they'll go on for uh, much of August. So we'll see. The North Koreans undoubtedly will have uh, ways of ratcheting up tension as these war games go on. 
You know, it seems like um, President Trump gets into situations and as they evolve, he gravitates towards an extreme position. We were just talking about the trade negotiations and now he's like way over on the Peter Navarro, we will remake the Chinese uh, economic system in the global economic system with our tariffs. And when it comes to North Korea, it seems like the the extreme position is you will give up all your nuclear program, uh, which, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it, it gets less and less likely the more North Korea builds and builds and builds. Uh, what, what, do you think he's gravitating towards that bottom line again uh, that is uh, – that's, that's, that's kind of unachievable? Well, I think there's a, a big struggle in, in Washington between people, particularly those who served in the uh, Bush or uh, Obama administrations who want a complete verified denuclearization of North Korea, which would take years, uh, and Trump, who seems happy if they're not blowing off atomic bombs and, and testing ICBMs, uh, as his kind of bottom line. I think if, if, uh, if Kim Jong-un did test one or the other of those uh, that would signify a real break with Trump. Uh, but there's a growing uh, sense among others in Washington, and I think some in the Trump administration, that the best we're going to get out of North Korea is a freeze, that we basically let them have their existing arsenal, uh, but they don't test and they certainly don't proliferate to somebody else. Uh, and that actually uh, has been the bottom line of people like Siegfried Hecker, really uh, – knowledgeable physicist at Stanford who's visited North Korea multiple times, uh, he, he thinks that's the only deal we're going to get out of North Korea. And I, I agree with him. Uh, I, I, there isn't anything that would ever convince me they give up their last nuclear weapon when they have 15,000 underground chambers uh, that we're supposedly going to run around and try and find the, the last nuke. Uh, and I think the interesting thing is Trump will probably go, pro, you know, would probably go for that if he got something else out of it that he really liked. It's curious, given the back and forth between North Korea and the U.S., that Trump really sees this as one of his, or maybe his major foreign policy achievement, is North Korea, and the elections coming up and all of that. So that this gives the North Koreans quite a bit of leverage, and I'm sure uh, they would be happy at least for a period of years. Uh, with no more uh, pressure to completely uh, denuclearize, but rather um, a freeze which would probably require normalization of relations with the U.S. and some aid, things like that. I'm talking with Bruce Cummings, professor of history from the University of Chicago, and we're discussing what's happening uh, with the U.S. and North Korea and what's happening in Asia. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about India's move to change Kashmir's autonomous status. Stay tuned. I wanted to go back to um, the U.S., I mean, uh, South Korea and Japan and what's been happening with their breakdown in trade. It sounds like Japan initiated this. Um, what What is going on there? Why, do, why are the Japanese uh, anxious about what's going on with South Korean trade? Well, this started when a South Korean court uh, told a, an aged gentleman who was a slave laborer in Japan that he could sue for – uh, some sort of reparations or recompense for his service, his work um, with uh, major Japanese firms. And that really upset the Japanese who say everything was settled between South Korea and Japan regarding World War II in 1965. 
and they just reiterated that. And then it it, it escalated uh, with Abe, who really has been on the sidelines of all of this. I mean, Trump doesn't really consult with Abe. Uh, Abe runs around trying to consult with Trump. He, he, he's been doing that during the entire Trump administration, trying to get on the good side of him. And I think Abe has decided he's going to pull some Trump actions. Uh, and he began by uh, siphoning off uh, chemicals that Japan exports to Korea for making silicon chips, South Korea and especially Samsung being uh, one of the major makers of those chips. And, and now it's escalated to uh, taking South Korea off the so-called white list of friendly nations. And that means even something like TV cameras. I was reading in the paper today that uh, <clears throat> Korean, uh, Koreans like to use Japanese uh, television cameras. That could be cut off. It's getting very petty. Uh, but another thing is the comfort women issue, which dogs the Japanese and has for years, really decades. Uh, there are these <laughs> statues of comfort women yep. put across from Japanese embassies and consulates around the world, and it drives them crazy, even though you would think a mature nation would be able to to deal with it. Uh, and and so that's come in, and and now there's a boycott in South Korea of all Japanese goods, Japanese beer, which is quite popular, Japanese uh, manga, comics, and all of that. And uh, the comfort women issue is a big one in in South Korea. There, there's uh, the sex slaves who were in World War II are it, it's been become a really uh, ground ground level issue for everybody. Yeah, and it has been for about 30 years since one of the comfort women finally decided to speak openly about what happened to her. Uh, and it's also just a very neuralgic issue between South Korea and Japan. It was one of the great atrocities of World War II to have 100 to 200,000 women essentially enslaved to the Japanese army, almost all of them Koreans. Uh, but there are ways to handle these things. Uh, on the part of Japan, which uh, they haven't done, which would to make really sincere apologies, uh, to pay reparations to the existing women who still are alive, uh, otherwise their their descendants, and to recognize this as as a major atrocity of World War II. Uh, <clears throat> but the Japanese, particularly when the uh, Liberal Democratic Party is in power, and it's almost always in power. Uh, have refused to make uh, really any concessions at all that satisfy uh, uh, the women and, and South Koreans more generally. There was a, an agreement under the previous president, Park Geun-hye, that they were going to put to rest this whole issue uh, of the comfort women. Uh, and Japan offered to pay quite a bit of money, not enough, but quite a bit uh, to these uh, survivors. But uh, the South Korean president... Uh, Moon abrogated that agreement a few months ago, and that's another thing that added fuel to this uh, this fire. And to me, I mean, I, I often <laughs> think some of these things are, are funny when they're actually quite serious. But the, the Japanese and the South Koreans have been arguing over who owns a pile of rocks in the middle of the yep. East Sea or the Japan Sea called Tukto, and uh, some Russian, a couple of Russian bombers flew over. Uh, 
those islands last week, and the, the South Koreans fired a couple hundred shots at them, warning shots. And then the Japanese said, you shouldn't be firing those shots. We should. That's our territory. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, gets, it gets petty, but there's no give on these issues. You know, they, especially the Japanese, they, they don't want to give in a way that w- would satisfy South Korean um, grievances. Is there some way the U.S. could mitigate this situation now if it were on the ball? Well, I mean, what's amazing about this administration is that uh, you would think their policy would be to further this tripartite alliance in containing China when China is much more robust militarily in the region than it was, say, five or ten years ago. Uh, And during the Obama administration, they did everything they could to try and get South Korea and Japan together. Uh, but with Trump, you, you don't have the phalanx of diplomats going out to basically uh, hegemonically uh, uh, run South Korea and Japan and their foreign policy. I mean, you've got a hub-and-spoke system where we're the hub and Japan communicates with our State Department, South Korea communicates with it, but they don't communicate with each other horizontally. It's been like that forever. That gave the U.S. a tremendous advantage in, in bringing these people together. But now, I mean, I, I, this al- so-called alliance is in complete tatters. Uh, one more thing on this. President Moon went to Beijing some months ago and uh, very pointedly said, Japan is a friendly country, but it's not an ally. And all the U.S. wants is that alliance. That was a very uh, interesting statement. M- Moon is independent in a way. No South Korean president has been going back to Kim, Kim Dae-jung 20 years ago. So I don't think this is going to be solved anytime soon. Bruce Cummings is professor of history from the University of Chicago. And thanks a lot for joining us, Bruce, and talking about what's been happening in Asia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jerome. It's always a pleasure. Coming up after the break, India's move to change Kashmir's autonomous status. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. India's move to change Kashmir's long-standing autonomous status has everyone worried about what's next. There's an indefinite lockdown in place in Kashmir, the blackout on internet and phone usage. There's several prominent Kashmiri politicians under house arrest. With me is Dr. Mohammad Junaid. He's assistant professor of sociology, anthropology, and social work at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, and he's done research into youth activism and state violence in Kashmir. Thanks for joining me, Junaid. Hi, Jerome. Um, I wonder if you could give us a little lesson, because I don't think most people are familiar with what uh, the autonomous status in Kashmir was. It was something that goes all the way back to um, independence in India and uh, Pakistan. Uh, what what happened there? What was this autonomous status? 
Oh, yes. So it goes, as you rightly pointed out, all the way back to 1947, the moment British left uh, the subcontinent. At the time of partition, Kashmir was one of the princely states, um, which was asked by the British to either choose uh, India or Pakistan. And uh, now the Kashmir, the state of Kashmir, which included at that time and continue, uh, continued to include until a few days back, Jammu and Ladakh regions, was uh, a Muslim majority region. It had a Muslim majority, but it was ruled by a Hindu ruler. So uh, in the war that started between India and Pakistan, because the ruler was unable to decide in the initial few months what he was going to do, um, he eventually decided to go with Hindu majority India, uh, which, of course, was not to the liking of its Muslim majority. Nevertheless, some Kashmiri Muslim leaders uh, decided to endorse the Maharaja's, the king's decision, but on the condition that India was going to safeguard the rights uh, of the uh, residents of Kashmir, the Kashmir, the Muslims, as well as the Kashmiri Hindus. And all of that negotiation led to a constitutional um, article called Article 370, which guaranteed that the Indian parliament was not going to be able to make laws that uh, can be applicable to Kashmir, uh, that Kashmiri state legislator, Kashmiri representatives would make laws for Kashmir. The, on, the couple of things that could apply were um, related to defense, external affairs, and communications. So this arrangement has been going on since uh, 19, early 1950s. And it was the basis of the, you know, Kashmir's union with India. And Indian leaders themselves have for uh, all these decades uh, argued against uh, the popular Kashmiri uh, independence movement by saying that India guarantees Kashmiri rights and therefore there is no reason for Kashmiris to separate themselves from India. Now, what has happened uh, on um, the last on Monday, this last Monday, is that the Indian government uh, has um, revoked that Article 370, and along with it, it has revoked an element, the key element of it, which is called Section 35A, which gives uh, the state, which gave previously the state of Kashmir, the right to decide who is the permanent resident. 35A especially helped. Uh, uh, prevented people from outside from buying land in Kashmir and therefore uh, altering the demogra demography of the region. And so this is the context uh, of what has happened. And a few more things have also happened uh, in, in, in the same uh, declaration that India has made. Now, I wonder if you could explain why the BJP wanted to do this, because this, uh, the idea of uh, changing Article 370 and Section 35A is something that they've, that seems to be a goal of the Hindu Nationalist BJP party. What, what's their idea here? Oh, well, so uh, at the time of uh, the partition, the and the BGP and its previous avatars uh, and the, its mothership, the RSS, which is the largest right-wing paramilitary organization in the world, they always wanted Kashmir to be what they call fully integrated into India, which for them meant that uh, Kashmir cannot have any separate identity. Kashmiris could not claim themselves to be 
Kashmiris as a political, uh, you know, as a as a nation within a nation. And but they were in disfavor because one of their members had uh, at that time assassinated uh, Gandhi, who was the uh, the premier national liberation uh, leader of the Indian national movement. And so they were in disfavor. But they the BJP came to power uh, for the first time in 1996 and then uh, continued to gain more seats until, uh, you know, 2014 when the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi had uh, uh, an unprecedented majority. And the last election, which happened a few months ago, he gained even more seats than even before. And the key platform on which he was campaigning was that we cannot... Uh, you know, let Kashmir uh, have its separate uh, identity, uh, that it has to be fully integrated. So Hindu right wing has for, um, you know, during these last elections, um, basically claimed, uh, said that India is for Hindus. Although Narendra Modi keeps on, you know, saying that he is the prime minister of all the uh, all the people who live in India, but the way the dog whistle campaigns have been going on against Indian minorities, be those Muslims, Christians, there have been lynchings going on across India, and he has not condemned them openly. Uh, and Kashmir, which is the Muslim majority, only Muslim majority state in the Indian Union, they have been after its separate identity for a very long time. So um, this has been in their program for a very long time, and uh, people were not expecting that it was going to be so sudden, uh, that it was going to, I mean, the process with which, uh, in which it has taken place um, is kind of dramatic because uh, nobody in Kashmir right now knows what has happened to them. Uh, before the announcement uh, to revoke this article was made, as you pointed out, the entire region is under a lockdown. There is no internet, television, no news. Nobody can walk outside. There are shoot at site orders. So people in Kashmir do not know what has happened to them. I'm talking with Dr. Mohammed Janaid. He's done research into youth activism and state violence in Kashmir. And we're talking about the move by the Indian government to change Kashmir's longstanding autonomous status. Um, one of the things that we're hearing a lot about is the young people in Kashmir and how they'll react to this. Uh, there's been a lot of repression in Kashmir over the years. They've, their entire lives have been uh, really under a repressive, militarized system. And um, I know you grew up in Kashmir and uh, have done research on the youth activism. What, what do you think the reaction to this this change in status is going to be? Well, for your uh, listeners, it is useful to mention also that uh, Kashmir is probably one of the most militarized region in the world. It has an upwards of half a, half a million Indian soldiers who do not, you know, stay in their cantonments, their camps. They are out in the streets. They occupy most of the public sphere, uh, space. Uh, and just before this order was passed, uh, tens of thousands of new Indian soldiers were uh, sent into Kashmir. So uh, currently, uh, 
I mean, of, of course, for Kashmiris, they see uh, this, uh, you know, the, they always saw the possibility of revocation of this article as an existential threat to them as a, as, as a, as a people. Um, so once they come to know about this, it's surely going to lead to extensive violence. There is no two ways about it. Uh, the only way the people right now, I mean, we don't know what's happening, but uh, because no news is coming out of Kashmir right, right now, um, the only way India can keep tabs on it is through military repression by, by you know, uh, saturating the public space with its armed forces. Now, um, yeah, what uh, would something like uh, Pakistan, there's worries that Pakistan would get involved. They, they um, used uh, terrorist organizations to infiltrate in, in, uh, into Kashmir. Is that uh, – is there – possibility of more conflict with uh, Pakistan? So Pakistan has historically stated that they give Kashmiris moral and diplomatic support. But uh, beyond that, it is, um, of course, well known as well that Pakistan has uh, actively supported some militant organizations. But since uh, 9-11 in the U.S., Pakistani uh, authorities withdrew support to many of these groups. And the Kashmiri uh, armed militancy has basically been very minimal. At most, there have been not more than 200 armed militants active in Kashmir. And most of them are young Kashmiris who are who steal weapons from police officers. They are ill-trained. And in fact, as soon as they join these militant groups, um, they are uh, you know, uh, located and killed. Uh, so um, the possibility of infiltration is very low because also the line of control which divides Kashmir between India and Pakistan is heavily guarded. It's heavily mined and there's like bobbed wire everywhere and uh, there's, you know, not too much surveillance for that to happen. But at the same time, India and Pakistan have been uh, trading artillery, um, you know, barrages against each other. Um, recently, Pakistan claimed that India had, um, you know, uh, bombed uh, Kashmiri villages across the border with cluster bombs. There is an additional international element to what is happening. I mean, and it relates to United States trying to disengage itself from Afghanistan. Uh, in recent times, President Trump had said that he was ready to mediate in the Kashmir conflict if India and Pakistan would like him to. And he also claimed that Narendra Modi, Prime Minister of India, had asked him to do so. So Pakistan welcomed that and they saw that as a diplomatic victory. And uh, India also senses that they have, um, uh, India has invested, well, you know, a lot of material in Afghanistan. And if uh, you know, U.S. leaves Afghanistan, Pakistan will greatly benefit from it. It will be a strategic victory for Pakistan. Um, and therefore, what they want to do in from the, I mean, and this is what many strategic kind of people, experts in India are saying that we need to secure uh, Kashmir. Um, you know, so whatever is happening in Kashmir right now has deep connections with what is happening uh, in the Afghan broader region of, uh, you know, Central Asia and South Asia. Um, so, but it's definitely not a stabilizing move. It's not securing Kashmir for India. It's basically destabilizing Kashmir even further. Uh, it, you know, it's a hard thing to think about, but what is the ultimate game plan here for 
uh, India and the BJP, a, if they want to begin moving Hindus into Kashmir, buying land, do we have a China and Tibet scenario or Israel and the West Bank or are we trying to – uh, you know, when we say fully integrated into uh, India, what does that look like? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, full integration for uh, the Hindu right wing um, in India means that um, Indian Hindus should be able to um, go and live their established settlements uh, and change the demographic character of Kashmir. So basically, alter the facts on the ground to uh, forcibly resolve the issue of Kashmir. Um, you know, Indian. The the irony is that the Indian right wing historically worshipped the Nazi uh, German leaders, the fascists, but they're also very close to the uh, some of the Israeli leaders, especially on the extreme right there. Um, so for them. It, they have for a very long time fantasized the possibility of a demographic uh, change and even ethnic cleansing um, from Kashmir. And for many Kashmiris who have been fighting for independence, this was always their greatest fear, that they knew that something like this was going to happen eventually. Um, because if um, if in, interna- India was given some kind of an international carte blanche, they were going to go ahead and, and do this kind of a thing. Now, what the revocation of this article does is it gives two major powers to the Indian government in Delhi. One, uh, and and this is through the um, revocation of the Section 35A, that Section removal of that section means that New Delhi will be able to determine how the land in Kashmir can be used or who it can be sold to and who can live there. The second important thing of this new order is that Kashmir is no longer a state within India. Uh, Kashmir has been the historic Kashmir has been bifurcated into two union territories. Ladakh has been separated from uh, Jammu and Kashmir, and Jammu and Kashmir will become uh, another union territory, which means that um, it will be a directly controlled territory from Delhi. It will no longer have a state status, which is like, you know, although BJP government and many um, Indian establishment figures had for a very long time said that Kashmir will no longer have a special status, that it should be like a state like every other state in India. But what has actually happened is that uh, they have demoted Kashmir to even a lower status, to a union territory status. Thank. Well, it's very interesting to hear about, and I will keep our eye on what's going on with Kashmir and their change in autonomous status inside of India. Dr. Mohammed Janaid is with the Massachusetts College of uh, Liberal Arts, and he's done research into youth activism and state violence in Kashmir. Thanks a lot for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jerome. Bye. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will talk about the Holocaust Museum and their panel on the legacy of U.S. slavery. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.